city limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, city limits, and um, we're uh, a team of two today. Uh, Meg Kimber over there, Meg Kimber over there, mm-hmm. yes, Eugenia's uh, laid up. She's not well. No, get so... Get well soon, Eugenia. Yes, yes, let's hope she's... Uh, if she wants to get well, she probably isn't listening to this show, but uh, <laughs> anyway... <laughs> you say something encouraging on that, though. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, okay, I'm Kevin Healy, by the way. It is the... Um, it is the second Wednesday of the month. It's one in which we do uh, energy issues. And the noise of rustling papers is me finding the name of our next guest. Um, and uh, our, our, we've got two guests, in fact. We've got John Englard. John's a, uh, an activist with the Climate Action Network that was formed. And he went as one of the NGOs to the Bonn Conference that was the follow-up to Paris uh, a few months ago. And... Uh, one at which the Australian government, if I recall, did not send a minister. I think most other paper um, countries sent ministers and senior people, but mm. we sent some junior bureaucrat or something. I mean, no, no insult to the particular bureaucrat, but uh, we did. <laughs> it was at the time it was suggested we weren't taking it too seriously. Um, and John done a report on on that and, and issues around climate, obviously, um, mm. as part of that. Network. So we're going to have John on in about 10 minutes or so. And the second half, we're going to have an old mate of ours, Professor Moriarty, Paddy Moriarty from Monash, who's going to talk to us about renewables and uh, some of the research he's been doing lately. So Brilliant. Yeah, there we are. So it's Energy Day. Because I noticed the other day something about how the trams are all going to be solar-powered by 2018, right? And I, that's not new news, is it? Like that was the beginning of the year that that, that was suggested. Yeah, yeah, but I think they right. might have started the process. Yes, but yeah. they, but of course the, um, you know, the national energy guarantee, which we'll talk to John about, I've got no doubt, uh, really guarantees that coal can keep going. It's not a, you know, it's uh, the. Yeah. They love the phrase uh, coal must be in the energy mix. Ninety <laughs> percent of energy needs yeah, to come from coal. Prefer a hundred, I think. <laughs> you want a cup of tea? I do. I really need. All right. A cup of tea well, today. just uh, my word, that's an encouraging sign. Oh. Yes, yeah. I'll just pour that. I, I wasn't near the mic. We'll put it up there near the mic so people can hear it. Lovely. Uh, there we are. So, and there you are. Thanks very much. Radio. Okay, and um, but we're going to kick off. I'm going to kick off with a couple of items I just wanted to raise because they sort of struck me this week. Um, and two, well, let's take, to, given that last night there was a budget, and that's about all we're going to say about it, that's it, that's our discussion on it. Other than, other than that, <laughs> <That's good>. um, <laughs> yeah, other than that, um, Matthias Corman last week came out saying tax cuts lead to pay rises. And uh, this was in, of course, our favourite paper, The Herald Sun. And uh, he said, creating the economic climate to give workers a pay rise is why the Turnbull government is giving big business $65 billion in tax relief in Tuesday's federal budget, even in the face of an aggressive labour campaign. Matthias said, said um, lifting workers' salary was a priority given wage growth had stagnated in the past decade. We want Australians today, etc. So by this, that means they're going to get a wage rise. And but he uses that phrase again. It's, it's uh, interesting. We mentioned before, they always talk about it over time, etc. And even Matthias said, um, we want Australians to be able to get a good job, have job security, have a career here in Australia, and yes, get pay rises over time. <laughs> um, <laughs> when we've decided you're ready. That's right. The tax yeah. cut won't be over time, it'll be, but, but this Straight will be away. over time. Mm. Um, and another article, this was in the Financial Review last Thursday, investment boom proves company tax cuts work. 
and close to half the Australian businesses that received a company tax cut in 2015, they got one just then, they want another one now, of course, either boosted investment spending or hiring, and, and mentions they did put on some put on more workers. But if you go down the actual numbers, it says some 51% was used to increase the business cash holdings, some of which may have been used to offset interest payments, another 27% was used to lift investment. 19% of firms decided to hire more workers. So actually 19% of them hired more workers. Not generally considered statistically significant. No, no, but you wouldn't call it a boomer, wouldn't thought. Not exactly. Um, and, um, but then only 3% raised wages. Oh, great. Uh, now that's, the, um, that's <laughs> Matthias's great one. But anyway, just to prove what Matthias said was clearly true, and it does increase wages, yep. out of Washington this week... U.S. unemployment has fallen below 4% for the first time in almost 18 years, but economists remain perplexed that wage growth remains stubbornly subdued. Mm. Now, you'll recall that after um, Trump's tax cuts a while ago, they were raving about how they spent wages and Walmart even gave workers another dollar an hour or something and got them even closer to a living wage. Um, But mostly what they did was pay uh, workers bonuses. I think I don't. I mean, obviously, I don't know every, what every business did, but generally, a lot of business gave staff bonuses, which of course isn't going to lead to long-term well, no, no, financial no. security for people no, who are working you, poor. You walk down the aisle at Walmart when they pay you and buy something and give it back. Yeah, that's to it them. exactly. That's, yeah. 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 Um, Anyway, stocks on Wall Street soared higher in reaction to the soft 2.6% annual rise in average hourly earnings. So when wages stay low, stocks go up. Isn't that wonderful? It is, isn't um, it? Good yes, for the st- stockholders. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wages have shown, shown tentative signs of firming only to take a step sideways or backwards. With a low 3.9% jobless rate, rate, economists are searching for reasons why US wages remain soft and are wondering, etc. Economists blame weak productivity as usual. Mm. The lack of any meaningful acceleration in worker pay is mainly the result of weak improvements in productivity, if, however, the late... But then it goes on to say that there's no real connection anymore. Increases in wages of about 2% have become the norm in Australia rather than 3 to 4% mark, which was the norm a while back. That's what our Reserve Bank governor said. Mm. And while productivity and wages have historically been closely linked, it's no longer applying. Mm. And they point out that they thought that the tax cuts would uh, lead to higher wages, but they haven't. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, mobile gig economies, etc. This combined with a decline in trade union membership, which I think this is the important bit. Mm-hmm. And this is the chief economist at the Bank of England, a bloke called Andy Haldane, and he just they these people say there's no such thing as class struggle. He says mm-hmm. this combined with a decline in trade union membership had made it easier to divide and conquer workers' power. Oh. Wow. There you are. But so do they say what the average wage is in America in there? They don't say it here, but we know it's pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, so anyway, that proves Matthias's point that workers are going to massive wage rise if the bosses get a big tax cut. That's good. Yeah. Hopefully he's listening and he can hear his cheer squad. That's right. Yep. Away <laughs> we go. <laughs> now, allied to that was a story this week um, that a, a deputy president of the um, Fair Work so-called commission, Alan Coleman, he um, upheld the sacking of two SO workers. Now, this is this arises out of this... this they've been on strike down there for... or locked out for, for, for months now. Yeah. Um, and it came because the company retrenched them all then offered them their jobs back the next day with much lower... And even the Spin Review says through a subsidiary on much lower pay and conditions. And they've been locked out and a few workers are still working and they're calling them scabs, but that's now so illegal. And the reason that people were were sacked because they did abuse these workers and create a, according to the the deputy president, um, create a hostile and intimidating work environment and one... One contractor was called an effing scab. Now, you know, on a on a picket line with scabs going through, that's so unusual to have that happen. Um, and um, and the union claims that, of course, it's selling years of hard work conditions down the drain, etc. But 
Coleman said the ETU delegate had engaged in very intimidating and abusive language toward the employee. Use of such language is manifestly unacceptable in the workplace and amounts to serious misconduct. That's calling someone who's a scab a scab. Um, But then he goes on to say at another point, in my view, such conduct can fall within the proscription of creating a hostile working environment, making a person feel isolated or ostracised, which is what it's supposed to do, of course, but um, that's a bad thing according to him. Uh, But his his point about creating a hostile working environment, I would have thought sacking all your workers and then offering them the the same job next day on much lower pay and conditions probably creates a more hostile working environment than calling a scab a scab. Creates a pretty stressful environment. I would have thought so. I would have thought so, Meg. Having your job lost and then having to take it back with lower pay and worse conditions from the sound of it. That's pretty stressful for anyone, really. That's that's how I would have seen it too. But anyway, uh, Interesting, isn't it? That the people who complain are the ones that are making the problem. Yep. Not really. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of uh, of unions, we all recall in the um, the Royal Commission into Unions, which the the government couldn't wait to call, as it couldn't wait to call one into the banks. Of course, we know it. Oh didn't. yes, they yes. Were just couldn't wait no, to call. No, the no banks. procrastination there at all. <laughs> Not at all. Um, and uh, well, what happened? Yeah, you know, the the way it worked was simple. The the Crown Prosecutor Court Counsel assisting would make the most outlandish claims about unions. They'd be all over the front page of the papers, particularly the Herald Sun. Yeah. Uh, and then they'd all get most of the, almost all allegations would get refuted under cross-examination or if they were actually allowed to to lead evidence because they were often barred from even cross-examining witnesses. Wow. Um, but it would get refuted, but the refutation would never, ever appear in the papers. So all you got were the big headlines, which proved to be, in almost all cases, false anyway. Oh, my gosh. And were usually associated with doing a job like Work safety or something, you know. They, yeah. You know, and so you, and they might have used the bit of on a building site actually called someone, you know, swore at them or something. Well, for yeah, goodness' right. sake, I mean, they never swear in boardrooms, do they? Or no, respectable companies like banks. Yeah. Um, but Westpac is complaining about the fact that uh, what the council assisting alleged about them. Uh, was played up in the press, etc., and they're denying. They're saying much of it isn't true. It's terrible, and we're being set up. So the Fin Review's taken up their cause on this case. They never That's ever took good. up the cause of unions that they were being, they were being attacked with evidence that was mm. unproven, but it was all over the front page. Mm. But they've got two pages devoted to this problem. Westpac hit at Hain game changer. The game changer being that these accusations can be made and. You know, it hits the headlines. Now, they might well, in the bank's case, I think we have to admit they're probably very true. But they, conc- <laughs> they conclude by saying, but Westpac's demolition of the pub- of the PricewaterhouseCoopers spreadsheet, which is one of the things they're complaining about, that it was misread. They misinterpreted what it said. The, the, what, yeah. They misread the spreadsheet or that they the, yeah, the, t- tinkered with the, well, the information. Oh, please, don't say this. No, no, please, no. No, no, no. But anyway, they, they're saying that... They the, the Crown, the Council assisting's interpretation of some of the conclusions in the PricewaterhouseCoopers spreadsheet, which Westpac Commission um, mis, misinterpreted what they really said, etc., you see. Uh, so they weren't really as bad as they said. Uh, but its demolition spreadsheet shows that this is the conclusion of the article in the Fin Review, shows that there is another side to some of the evidence being presented by Council assisting. Now, again, I don't recall them ever saying that hmm. about Council assisting in the workers, the Union Royal Commission. Um, and if they had, you would have seen it, Kevin, because you read yes. every paper. I would, have, I would have got it. I would have picked yeah, it up somewhere. I think somewhere, you would yeah. have scoured those papers with a fine-tooth comb. I probably would have, Looking Megan. for anything. Yes, yes. <laughs> but then the, there's good news at the end of all that. Oh, good. Now, one of them is in this page. I didn't realise it was right next to it. There's a headline, Bob Hawke in Hospital, which um, I, That's don't not be- the good news. I don't regard as bad news. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, but... West, well, given that the decline in union membership emanates from his prime ministership, so yeah. I suppose that's uh, something. But no, the headline I wanted to look at was this one, because given the whole situation with the banks and how awful it is, um, the, the Westpac's the one they just talked about that uh, mm. is complaining. Westpac's $4 billion profit. <laughs> right. Banking Goliath Westpac has raked in $4.25 billion in six months. Um 
despite their headline, their chief Hartzer, who's the bloke complaining in this other article I just read out, um, that some inexcusable customer treatment revealed by the Royal Commission. Wow. But, uh, yeah, but anyway, they're still making huge profits. Isn't that great? Oh, yeah. <laughs> My God, it's mind-blowing. Yes, it's wonderful. But, I mean, that's how you make profits, isn't it? Like Rip off. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. Like, yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, I mean, they can so. argue that the real problem in the economic, in the system is the Royal Commission, which has exposed all this. And if yeah, it hadn't, just they like could have the, just kept doing just it. Just like the people picketing is yeah. the real problem. When people they always get... seem to get sorry when they get sprung. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There we are. So, okay. Look, we'll take a break, come back, and we'll go to our first guest, who's John, um, John Engler. Okay, on the line we have... Um, John Englart, who um, mentioned is uh, was a member of the or one of the people who went to Bonn as a member of the National uh, Climate Network, the Climate Action Network, indeed, last year. John, just before we we move on to Bonn itself, um, the Climate Action Network was a coalition, is it not, of of a number of groups around the place? And are you one of the the people who went to Bonn as part of these NGO groups? That's right. The Climate Action Network Australia is the peak organisation that covers a whole range of environmental and climate action groups, including um, some of the large organisations like the Australian Conservation Foundation, Greenpeace Australia, and um, a lot of the smaller grassroots groups uh, like uh, Darabin Climate Action and um, Climate Action Moreland, which I'm a member of. So we're actually um, part of a global network, the Climate Action Network, um, which has uh, members um, in most countries around the world. So um, I was part of the Australian delegation that um, met up with and worked with the um, members from all around the world in the Climate Action Network. Right, and the Bonn Conference, it was a follow-up to Paris, was it not? Just to basically to see people were doing the right thing or whatever. What was it about, in fact? Yes, um, well, uh, the Bonn Conference was uh, the UN uh, climate change uh, conference uh, last held last year, November. Um, these conferences are currently held yearly. Um, Paris, the Paris uh, Conference was held in 2015, and it formulated a major agreement, the Paris Agreement, which um, uh, basically it, uh, the agreement was important for getting all countries on board in setting a clear target of limiting um, global warming to two degrees and striving for the 1.5 degree target. Um, so it was a groundbreaking agreement to get, um, and that was the but the details of how the agreement uh, was to work uh, they weren't actually worked out. So Bonn was about Bonn and the previous conference in Marrakesh in 2006 were about working out so-called rule book of the Paris Agreement. Um, so I was there as part of a delegation to basically um, observe um, the diplomats and negotiators um, and try and push them to be more ambitious with uh, the rule book details, with their negotiations around finance, and supporting um, least developed countries in their programs of uh, energy transition. Mm. So when you're there on the ground, you can sort of see um, which countries are really taking this seriously and which countries are making a bit of a token effort. Would that be right? Uh, yes. Mm. So you can um, see that uh, the major developed countries um, tend to be holding back uh, both in terms of their own climate targets and mm. also in um, not uh, assisting the least developed countries. And we see that in negotiations continually. You know, over the life of the climate negotiations, it has been the developed countries that have tended to block and hold back 
in these negotiations. And in fact, there's what is called an intercessional um, meeting happening right now in Bonn. So it's a smaller meeting in which you know the finer details are discussed and being negotiated. And Australia uh, seems to be playing a little bit of a less ambitious role mm. in um, the current uh, meeting happening in Bonn today. It must be really disappointing for the countries in the Asia-Pacific region who are really facing the effects of climate change now with rising sea levels. Uh, yes. Uh, that's uh, one impact, not mm. only rising sea levels, mm. but you're also getting uh, stronger tropical cyclones mm-hmm. impacting mm. these countries. And, you know, when you get a Category 4, Category 5 cyclone, you know, hitting um, Fiji or Vanuatu, mm. it's, um, it's devastating. It causes a um, major loss of life yep. um, and it damages a lot of the infrastructure. Mm. And this is happening in the... Uh, over the last few years, Australia has been cutting back on our foreign aid program. Mm. So, you know, it's um, really problematic when yeah. we've got a federal government basically in climate denial and um, cutting back on climate-related programs both here in Australia and in supporting our foreign, our Pacific neighbours. Mm. I suppose as climate refugees, though, they'll get a a wonderfully warm, humane hearing from uh, Peter Dutton. So that's okay, uh, John, really, um, to let them into the country. Um, Given that Minister Frydenberg and the government tell us about their wonderful commitment to Paris, I would have thought Australia would be almost leading the way there to get the world to start doing some action, but apparently not. You would think so, but in fact, uh, Australia proposed just uh, uh, a few days ago in Bonn to cut back the number of uh, UN climate uh, change conferences uh, post-2020, which mm. um, will result... If that were to occur, it would result in less discussion of the impacts of climate change on least developed countries. Um, mm. And basically, it'll focus more on the legalities of the existing agreement rather than um, dealing with the wider issues that uh, these countries are raising. Mm. Yeah, well, some, some experts are saying, by the way, that the, the um, National Energy Guarantee, uh, which is looking at 26% between 2005 and 2000 and something else, 20 or something, isn't it? Um, that that's not enough anyway to meet our Paris commitments. So in what we are, what we are about to do is less than we should be doing, even given that Paris is a pretty pretty ordinary commitment in the first place. That's correct. The National Energy Guarantee um, targets for electricity reduction for electricity emissions reduction of twenty six to twenty eight percent is not nearly enough because electricity. Um, can more easily be decarbonised than other sectors, such as agriculture or industrial processes. Mm, Or transport. So that's why we need to ramp up renewables Mm. and battery storage technologies, demand management, so that we can decarbonise our electricity system, Mm. which would help in decarbonising our transportation system, so electric vehicles, more public transport based upon um, a renewables-powered grid. Um, so if that share can be decarbonised much easier, it means there's more allowance for agriculture and industrial processes, um, which are much more difficult to decarbonise. Mm. When you're on... So oh. the government has no plans in place for how to get 20 to 28% emissions reduction from transport, industrial processes um, Mm. or agriculture. And, you know, if they're going to prosecute that, we only just need 26 to 28% from um, stationary energy, then they also need to present a plan how they're going to do it in these other sectors, and they haven't. Yeah, and what do you think is the... um, from 
being on the ground and, and seeing the way other governments are responding, um, the countries that are reluctant, is it ideological or is it political or is it lobby groups that are stopping these governments, our government, from taking action on climate change? And um, Well, it, once again, it's um, usually uh, developed countries which are hindering the process and a lot of that is also coming from lobby groups, mm-hmm. the fossil fuel industry, the large um, oil and mining companies mm-hmm. um, are using their power and influence with government. Yeah. You just see that in the um, political donations process, you know, how much money they're giving to certain parties. Yep. And, you know, the revolving door of you know, mining company people working in as staffers for politicians and politicians and their staffers mm. after they leave politics going into the fossil fuel sector. Yes, um, mm. and the name Ferguson springs to mind all of a sudden, John. Um, but I noticed that uh, Frydenberg, the minister, also says he predicts that coal will remain part of the energy mix, as they love to call it, uh, until at least 2070. Uh, uh, I would have thought that would be 2070 or until the human race is wiped out, whichever comes first. Um, yes, well, I think he underestimates uh, the energy transition that's already happening. There has been a large number of planned coal plants in Asia um, that have been cancelled already. Mm. Um, you've got renewables, so solar and wind resources are already cheaper um, to build than coal-fired power stations. Mm. So um, business just is not investing in coal. Coal is effectively dead mm. as a new energy source. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and, you know, yeah, I've, I've actually spoken to uh, Josh Frydenberg at um, last year Bond, and we uh, respectively disagreed with each other. I was attempted to give him the Fossil of the Day Award, um, <laughs> which was made by the Climate Action Network um, for over the Adani Carmichael coal mine yeah. in Queensland. Well, I'm glad he got something anyway. Goodness. <laughs> Poor old Josh getting an award. Yeah, and of course Terry McCran, the um, the very conservative econ- economic writer for for Murdoch, he uh, keeps running the line that it's far too expensive to go to to go to um, renewable energy. He said we can't have a market based solution so long as policy mandates and subsidises subsidies directly to the tune of three billion a year and billions more indirectly in your power bills in the building of useless wind turbines. So again it comes down as far as they're concerned to money. Um, although in fact their arguments about subsidies to renewable energy are diminishing rapidly, aren't they? Um, they are. Um, you'll you're finding that there are actually uh, wind projects and solar projects um, coming online or about to be built without um, subsidies, and I'm mm. talking globally here, not only in Australia. But you, it also ignores that currently there is about $11 billion of tax subsidies going to the fossil fuel sector just in Australia. $11 billion, and neither major party in Canberra wants to address that situation and look at phasing that out. So they could save $11 billion mm. per year just by phasing out fossil fuel tax subsidies now. Amazing. It's it's so ironic that they say that, that's, that um, renewables are not feasible financially because they need subsidies, whereas the exact um, the, the fossil fuel industry is only viable because it has all of these subsidies. Exactly. That's and weird. then once you take into account the health costs of mm. um, coal-fired power station and you just mm. have to look at the impacts of the uh, mine fire in Morwell uh, a couple of years ago, mm. which you know resulted in... Um, death 
best of people, mm. but there's ongoing health impacts of coal, the pollutants from coal-fired power stations, mm. coal dust, and that's never factored in yeah. um, to the, the cost structures. But, mm. you know, it's a cost that we all bear. And indeed, the, um, the the fossil, the promoters of fossil fuels, the owners of fossil plants, etc., continue to argue that we can only do something if the economy can afford it. If it can't, we assume they say, "Well, the earth can go to hell," so to speak. Yes, except uh, we all have to live on this earth. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> well, they're making it a hell as it gets hotter and hotter. Exactly. Um. um John, you, uh, I'm interested in what you're saying about how energy transition is already happening. And I'm curious, like on the global stage, if I feel like China is definitely investing in renewables. Is that correct? And what, what kind of influence does, do you think that has on the global situation? China's had a big impact. Mm-hmm. Um, they've put a lot of... Um, resources into both solar and wind in transitioning their own energy system, Mm. which has been um, large-scale coal-fired power stations, but more and more they're having more solar, more wind. They're electrifying their transportation network Mm. with um, putting um, electric buses buses in, high-speed trains, um, and the volume of their... Uh, solar production is actually has actually reduced the cost mm. of the solar panels and solar technology, right. which is benefit, benefiting um, Australia and the globe. Mm. Are they part of the talks? Um, yes, China mm. is uh, one of the countries that uh, participates in the UNF Triple C. Right. Yeah, John, we're running out of time, but. Um, after Bonner, how do you feel in terms of being confident or positive or negative? What, what's your feeling rising out of it? I still think there's um, so much to do um, that we know that the Paris Agreement, at the moment the commitments made under that, will see us reach three degrees of global warming by the end of the century. So we know that... The, commitments by Australia and all the other countries um, is still not good enough and we need to ramp up our ambition, more rapid transition to um, low, low carbon economy. So, you know, we need, you know, Josh Frydenberg uh, to be acting. We know that uh, the Andrews government is actually taking some um, good uh, actions in terms of establishing the Victorian renewable energy target, which will drive more renewables from Victoria. But that's not happening on a federal level, and it needs to. Yeah, well, just to finish up, I always ask people when we get to this point, um, with, this, with this debate's been going on for so long, we must reach a tipping point beyond which it's very almost irreversible. Do you have thoughts on that? Um, well, yes, we've already started processes. So once you get um, a certain amount of warming in the system, you get uh, climate feedback mechanisms happening. Mm. Um, so that's something like um, you start warming the Arctic region, you get loss of Arctic sea ice, which means the seas warm much quicker because the seas are darker in colour than the ice. So the darker seas warms the ocean, adds to the warming, so you get more sea loss, sea ice loss, which adds to the warming, so it becomes a circular loop there. Mm. Um, and there's a similar feedback loop for in terms of methane uh, emissions, especially from polar areas. Um, and uh, you also you, we're also seeing um, greater uh, ice loss, ice mass loss from Antarctica. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the West Antarctic ice sheet is probably already unstable, and we're committed to losing it, which will result 
over a few hundred years of four or five metres of sea level rise. Right. So we have to think in terms of the long, long term mm. here that we've already set in motion multi-metre sea level rise. So anyone who lives at Brighton or along the coast, you know, their property value will be declining. <laughs> and you sound upset by that, John. <laughs> well, I'm OK. I'm actually in Faulkner, so I'm pretty high up. So even effect, it is already affecting property prices in the US. Um, wow. They say that there's um, a 7% discount now being factored in for people who live right on the coast for wow. coastal properties. Yeah. So it's already having an uh, economic impact on property prices. Yeah, we've mentioned before the insurance industry is the canary in the coal mine in this situation, and they, they're fully aware of what's going on. Yep. Yeah. All right, look, John, we're going to have to finish there because we've got to go to an interview with uh, Paddy Moriarty out at Monash. But, um, look, thanks for your time today, and we'll keep in touch on this. The next conference, you said there's one a year. Where is it this year? conference this year is in Poland in December. Mm. Um, it's actually in the coal mining region of Silesia. In the <laughs> okay. Well, that could be and, interesting. Yeah. But there has been some positive things. The chief negotiator for Poland actually made some positive statements oh. um, in the current negotiations happening in Bonn. So Poland has... has um, in recent years, been one of those countries that has been dragging their heels because mm. they do have a quite a substantial coal industry there. So if they're starting to move, that's um, an important uh, thing to happen. Right, Josh Breidenberg, take note, yeah. Mm. All right, John, thanks for your time today and we'll, we'll keep in touch on it. Thank you for having okay. me on. Right, yeah, thanks. Okay. Okay, and on the line, our old mate, Professor Moriarty from Monash, Paddy Moriarty, and um, he's still sitting there researching away madly, I suspect. Paddy, we've just had a. (laughs) (laughs) We've just had an interview with a bloke who went to the Bonn conference last year, and he's uh, feeling pretty pessimistic about things. But, Paddy, you're. Looking at renewables, etc., um, we just commented that they that people like the Cran and the Herald Sun still argue that they're heavily subsidised and it's a, a weight on the economy and totally unnecessary. But uh, you wouldn't agree with that, would you? Partly. Um, the, thing, oh. the, the, the fact is that all energy sources are subsidised. Fossil fuels, nuclear and renewables are all subsidised. Uh, fossil fuels, because they form about 80% of the um, world's energy, uh, primary energy use, have... Well, the World Bank estimated a subsidy, I think, at $5 trillion. $5 trillion. Mm. So, but they are all subsidised to some extent, yes. Uh, two forms of subsidy. Sometimes it's, uh, it's direct subsidy to producers or consumers. Other times it's their external effects that are subsidised, their externalities that are subsidised. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, the externalities, well, for instance, if it's fossil fuels, it could be air pollution, it could be um, oh. uh, greenhouse gas emissions and so on. Um, that's the, yeah, what the, uh, what is called externalities by by economists. Um, like, and health, we were just talking about the health. Yeah, well, health is air yep. pollution, yeah. Yeah, yep. right. mm. yeah. but um, Paddy, I know you do a lot of research into renewables. Um, they still they they still argue the problem about when the sun don't shine, etc. But um, are we are we advancing? Um, I think well, at face value, I, we seem to be. But are we advancing as well as we ought to be? Well, uh, I think um, if you go back, I think the percentage of uh, of non uh, non fossil fuels in use today. Uh, as a percentage of the for for electricity is less than it was in 1985. Part of this is due to the decline in nuclear with um, uh, with the Fukushima. Mm. But um, the, no, it's not advancing very fast. But I think one thing we need to do is, I think the division between fossil fuels and renewables we've made it too sharp. I think right. In other words, renewables also have, in some cases, have um, quite serious climate change effects as well. Therefore, in other words, there's some overlap with the climate change effects per per uh, kilowatt hour, for instance, for electricity, mm. between, uh, say, natural gas and 
and some renewables, right? So we need to, we, I think we need to be very careful here. So what are some of those um, problems with, with renewable then in terms of climate change? Well, uh, for, uh, for hydro schemes, it's partly the emissions of uh, carbon dioxide and uh, methane released from the, uh, from the dam reservoirs themselves. Mm. Um, well, for instance, as the, uh, uh, as the water line rises and falls each year uh, in the dry season, then um, uh, plant matter on the edge will, will, will get submerged and that will then decay. And if it's um, if it's anaerobic, then then it will be it will form um, methane, which is a effective greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. There's also the fact that, especially in the tropical areas, uh, forests are just flooded for, for for the reservoirs, and that um, and that biomass material then decays over time and releases both mm-hmm. carbon dioxide and methane. For um, for uh, geothermal energy, again, it's carbon dioxide release. Um, uh, Caused by the uh, the action of um, by, by the production of geothermal energy itself, and this can, mm-hmm. uh, especially for new, some of the newer schemes, this seems to rival that from um, uh, from a natural gas power station per per kilowatt hour produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, for biomass, of course, there are enormous problems because biomass has competitors in a uh, in in a heavily populated world for both biomaterials and for um, uh, food, and um, so uh, what this means is, especially for instance, for um, uh, well, uh, liquid biofuels for, for transport are in fact produced or produced from food, that is, um, corn, um, cereal, or um, uh, edible oils, mm. and therefore directly. Um, uh, directly confronts um, uh, food food provision. Um, what else? Um, wind and solar probably have lower effects. Um, mm. They're probably the ones that have less effects than um, than the three I've just mentioned. The other three I just mentioned. So part of the issue sounds like addressing our energy use. Uh, yes. The, yeah. In other words, what we have to do is cut down our energy use because. Mm. Generally, uh, cutting down energy use has fewer um, indirect greenhouse gas emissions than any other. Mm. You know, for instance, it might mean an increase in insulation, for instance, or it might mean closing doors, which has and, and windows at the right time and opening them at the right time and yes. pulling down the blinds at the right time and so on, which has a zero um, carbon implication. Yeah. Except, uh, Sorry. Or unexpected. And in your experience, where um, where are the most viable areas of energy saving are they domestic or industry? Like that's... Uh, there are quite. For instance, there's a uh, study of um, six what they call um, terrace houses. I think it was six identical terra- terrace houses in England, mm. and um, <clears throat> they found I think a fourteen a factor of fourteen in in uh, heating cooling energy use or mainly heating energy use between those identical. They were sort of solar housed. In other words, they had a sunroom or something, right? Right. And the main, and the main reason was the, the habits of the occupants, right, whether they actually tried to save energy or not. Wow. So just building um, a five-star rating house doesn't, doesn't do it, right? It's, people have got to change. It's behaviour, well, yeah. yeah. And turn the switches off at the wall when you're not using something. It's, well, there is uh, that. And there's also, as yeah. I say... Um, you know, even, for instance, uh, which room you go into. Like if it's um, mm. winter, then you go into the sunroom during the day or something. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah. pulling curtains, opening and shutting blinds or windows and so mm. on for cross-ventilation in hot weather and so on and so on. Mm. Uh, and also dressing appropriately, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, and the opposite, of course, is happening because all the energy, the National Energy Guarantee for a start and, and the, the, the people who are going to have a say in the end result, unfortunately, are all planning for massive increases in energy use. So all the planning is for energy just to keep increasing rather than uh, looking at trying to save it and cut it back. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the more five-star ratings we have, the more energy we use, which is a problem, yeah. (laughs) It's like fridges, you know. Um, Mm. Yeah, they'll have a five-star rating as long as you don't open the door, right? In fact, what people have to do is decide what they want to take out of the fridge before they open the door. But people don't do that. They get in there and start thinking, which is not the way to do it. It's interesting because we were just, our last guest was from the Climate Action Network and was talking about the global 
conversations and negotiations between countries about keeping the climate accord. And um, you know, I was asking him, is it is it lobby groups or is it political? Is it ideological? But there's a big lifestyle factor in Australia, isn't there, that people just don't want to change their lifestyles. Yeah, and it's also, as I say, it's encouraged by the ethos of the country as well. You yeah. know, the, the idea of of continued economic growth and so on. Yeah. Mm. The the storage of power from the wind don't blow it and sun don't shine or whatever um, arguments. Uh, they, they, I notice there's a mob um, developing a silicon battery that they claim will be to do wonders. I mean, are there advantages here that that really can solve this? I know you've been sceptical of this in the past. Well, the trouble is I've been reading on this for 40 years and I read about breakthroughs every day, right? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it looks like lithium-ion batteries because lithium is the lightest metal. Uh, and if you're talking about um, uh, if weight's a factor, as it would be for a transport vehicle, then, then that's important. Um, if it's not, uh, then there may be... Um, like the uh, ones developed by the University of New South Wales, that woman there, which is a, a liquid battery, which I think has been installed on uh, King Island with their uh, wind generator there to as a backup. Um, mm. Yeah, look, at present it's not a great problem because, as I say, about 60 or 70% of the world's electricity uh, is, is, is produced from fossil fuels. Therefore, um, it's pretty easy to cover the intermittency of, of whatever uh, intermittent renewable energy, that is wind and solar, that we're, we're producing. It will become more of a problem as we move to 100% uh, wind and solar because they're the only two renewable energy forms that have uh, a large te- technical potential. Mm. And also, um, as we, if we have to develop... Um, wind and solar energy for non-electric uses, in which case, of course, these produce primary electricity, in which case we're going to have to convert them to maybe hydrogen and so on. Um, So, yes, uh, storage will be a problem. Uh, Even uh, solar thermal energy conversion, you know, these uh, power towers, um, which they've got a number in Spain and and, um, America, and a recent paper on that says that, um, you know, especially in... Winter, sure, they're pretty good for evening out the because they work on a heat engine principle, and they've got a heat bank. Even when the sun goes down, they can still generate some electricity for after hours. But uh, in the winter in um, North America or Europe, uh, they may deliver none for months. So mm. again, we do have a storage problem there. What do you mean by non-electrical? Well, um, for instance, uh, natural gas. What we use natural gas for, oh, for heating, cooling, that sort of thing, right? Yep, yeah. I mean, and some of this could be converted to electricity. For instance, um, maybe transport could be converted. Um, uh, we'll see. Well, except for air travel, I can't see you with a um, power cord uh, dangling <laughs> out the air travel. That'd be a pretty long one. Uh, and taking batteries on planes just doesn't seem to get you far. And you'd certainly panic when it came out at the, with the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be bad. Yeah. So, and even ship travel, I don't think um, these will ever be um, electrified. Uh, yeah. But with um, reduced travel, yeah, it could work. As I say, the, mm. the key take-home message today is we have to use less energy. That renewable energy, and especially in future, will have more climate change impacts among other other environmental impacts. Think of uh, hydro, for instance, mm. or a biomass. And therefore, we'll have to use less energy. The other thing is that we need to look at each renewable energy project on its terms and ask, is it really uh, cutting um, greenhouse gases? For instance, this uh, palm oil in uh, Indonesia and so on, which is uh, on peat soils. And of course, when you clear the uh, vegetation, you start releasing the uh, carbon from the peat, right? So whether they're in fact uh, climate neutral or worse is, is being debated at present. But what happens so often is, a given form of energy is given a um, 100% uh, non-carbon tick, you know, and that's just wrong. Yeah. yeah. And the idea, we're running out of time, unfortunately, but just um, a we quick are indeed. question. Yeah. Um, uh, the clean coal, is that correct that that's just um, carbon, like compensation, basically? Like they plant this many trees and then they can call the coal clean? Is that... well, well, that's one way of doing it. The other way is uh, carbon capture and storage. In other words, right. you take um, coal from under the ground, you burn it, which then increases its weight by uh, 3.66 or so, and then you um, and then you put the car- this uh, increased weight back in the ground, right? 
Uh, not mm. a smart way of doing things, but uh, obviously, yeah, look, nobody, the trouble is with uh, carbon capture and storage, that is, um, especially from power plant, the idea is you put in, um, you, you, you capture, we're using amides, a chemical, you, you capture um, carbon dioxide from the uh, exhaust stack, which will have about 10% carbon dioxide content, right. much higher than 0.04 in the air. Yep. Um, and then you uh, c- compress this, pipe it to a burial site and put it, uh, bury it deep underground about, say, uh, 800 metres or a kilometre down, right? And um, But it's not being done. There's, a, there's about 40 million tonnes now uh, captured and buried worldwide and we need... Uh, what? Uh, 40 million, but we need 40 billion. In other words, we need a thousand times greater. Well, it's very expensive. Plus, also, of course, you mentioned about burning, etc. It uses energy anyway to get to that point. So it. Uh, well, well it, yes, the, but, the, uh, the capture and burial and uh, piping process does use energy as well, yes. And, of course, as you use less and less fossil fuels, if we do move to renewable energy, it will, it will become less and less relevant because there'll be less and less fossil fuel power stations to. Uh, to, to, put, to put these plants on. So right. um, it, it can only be a temporary solution. Yeah. All right, Paddy, we're out of time, but thanks for that this morning, and we'll, we'll get back to you as one of our regular irregulars. We'll get back to you shortly. Okay. All okay. Right. Thanks for your time, Paddy. Bye. Radio. Uh, Paddy Moriarty there, professor these days, Professor Moriarty out at Monash. Uh, look, someone rang in and wanted to know the details of the workers' rally today, which starts in 15 minutes or so. Uh, well, they're gathering now. Um, a trades hall. At 11.15, um, they arrive outside the Magistrates Court in William Street. And at 12.20, at the intersection of Flinders and Swanston Streets, and then 1 o'clock, the thing ends, the rally ends. So we do urge people can get there, and I hope people are listening with things in their ears now and on their way mm. um, to the uh, the workers' rally today. And um, as I say, 10.15 outside Trades Hall, then one just wanders off to the Magistrates Court. Oh, that's because I presume there's a case going on at the moment. Maybe that's John Setka's case because he's, mm. he's got a hearing at the moment trying to get to the High Court. Ah, it's going to be a huge rally, I think. Hope so. Yeah. Hope so, yeah. Well, let's, let's hope so. It will, I think it will be. And yeah. as I say, it goes then it goes to Flinders Street and Swanston and then ends at uh, 1 o'clock. So that's the details. We've run uh, right up to 9.59, so mm-hmm. we, Meg, we've got to go. But thanks for your help this morning. Thank you, Kevin, for and all of your hard work. Next week, week is week. our housing um, day, so we'll just have lots of housing news next week, which always sure che- cheers people news. up no end. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it.